Hi friends, good morning or good afternoon or good evening and welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is to work through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And you join us as we continue our working together through the Gospel of Matthew. And we've spent a couple of days looking at what Jesus says in this discussion with the scribes and the Pharisaic leadership about what is the ultimate proof of him really being the Messiah. So before we kick off and pick up where we left off last time, can I just suggest that if you're here for the first time, then why not consider hitting the subscribe button and that way you'll make sure you'll never miss another single episode of this free podcast series. And if you are a regular here and finding this teaching series helpful, then I would humbly request that you consider liking it, sharing it, or even reviewing it so that other people may be brought within the orbit of its reach. So with that all said, thank you very much for joining me and we'll drop back in and we'll pick off where we left off last time. remember that the last time we got together we saw the Pharisees asking Jesus for a sign proof that he was the Messiah but he actually refuses directly but he responds by saying that in a sense yes there's only one other sign and I'll give it to you and that is the sign of the prophet Jonah and we then discussed and we looked at what he was actually referring to was his own future resurrection now previous generations he tells them had Jonah and they listened to him and because that they got it they got the messages from God but they these guys standing in front of him in front of Jesus the son of God himself they weren't getting it Jonah didn't work any miracles Jesus had worked dozens of miracles within their sight Jonah was only a minor prophet but Jesus was the Messiah himself and they had him standing before him but they were choosing not to receive him. So we'll pick up the text as he further illustrates what this means with this scripture picking up at verse 42 of chapter 12 which tells us the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom and now something greater than Solomon is here. So this verse is referring, of course, to the story of the Queen of Sheba, who came from, well, we don't know exactly where, uh, but it was probably, experts would say, from somewhere like Saudi Arabia, and that she had travelled independently all the way to Jerusalem because she'd heard about Solomon and she wanted to see him, and that when she did get in front of him, she was very impressed by his wisdom and recognised that it was a godly wisdom. And Jesus is saying, look, that woman, she recognized the Spirit of God, even though she was a Gentile, even though she was a foreigner, she recognized it just by meeting one of God's great servants. Now, there's a real sting in this phrase for the Pharisee, for these guys living in first century Palestine to be told that the Ninevites, these bad people from the Old Testament, got it, and they were Gentiles as well, by the way, and then to be told that a woman and a foreign woman of all things also got it, well, that would be, well, frustrating to say the least for them. So Jesus here is definitely choosing his illustrations very carefully and very deliberately and saying, look, she got it, the Queen of Sheba got it, and she just came to visit Solomon, then why ever are you not able to get it? 
because I'm standing before you. And remember, he just said a few verses back that he was indeed greater than Jonah and Solomon, and that he who is greater than them was amongst them now. In other words, he's saying, yes, Solomon was wise, and people received God through him, but Jesus, that he was wiser. Also, you could say that Solomon was a king, but standing before them was actually the king of kings. So even though he who was greater than Solomon was there, and they were not receiving it, would mean that those who received the message from Solomon, or people like the Queen of Sheba, will stand in judgment against you on the judgment day, because you are the ones who had a greater opportunity to receive what God was offering to you, and you have turned it down. If that wasn't bad enough, he now chooses to illustrate the consequences of such a decision to them. Picking it up at verse 43, it says, When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. But then it goes in and it takes with it seven other spirits even more wicked than itself. And they go and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. And this is how it will be for this wicked generation. Wow, what a statement about the consequences of making the decision that they are making. And the last verse of this short little section is very important because he is actually tying it in by saying, this is how it will be for this wicked generation. Now, the point of the illustration is obviously that this person is demon-possessed and the demon is cast out. And while he's gone, the person, well, they clean themselves up a bit, they straighten themselves out, but then the demon is allowed to come back. And the second time he brings back seven of his cronies with him and they take total possession back of that person. So the point of the story is really quite simple. It says that in the end results, as the result of a decision like this, then things will end up worse than they were in the beginning. I suppose an illustration of this might be like a person who loses 10 pounds in a crash diet, but if they don't change their lifestyle, they end up over the fullness of time putting 50 pounds back on again. Often we see people who are struggling with alcohol trying to give it up for years, stopping and starting, on again, off again. Often when they end up drinking, can spiral so much out of control that they become full-blown alcoholics, much worse than they were before. So Jesus is saying... In the end, it can be worse than the beginning if you don't choose to make the right decisions and get your house in order. But notice also that he's saying that this is true of this generation, that generation he's speaking to now. And we can tie that in because he's backing it up to the beginning of the passage when he talks about them being this evil and adulterous generation. So he's talking about this generation of Israelites and he's saying, look, it was John the Baptist who came and preached amongst us and he first preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's saying, out of this generation, large crowds went out in the wilderness to hear them and many were baptized and started following him. And now Jesus has come along and no doubt many believed in him directly, but obviously he attracted huge, huge crowds. Yes, he healed hundreds and people followed him. But we also know that what happened is that many didn't accept him. And we will see very soon that, in fact, the nation as a whole is about to reject him as Messiah. 
Now, I suggested that when we started studying this particular chapter a few days ago, chapter 12, it sort of represents a watershed in this narrative. Up to this point, Jesus's popularity has increased. But the religious leaders have been agitating behind the scenes so far. But now we're reaching a climactic moment when they actually have said that he's actually doing all this by the power of the devil. And that represents the decision that they're making about him. And it also represents the turning point in the ministry of Christ Jesus. So he's saying, look, this whole nation as a whole, this entire generation are about to turn against me. And when they do that, it's going to be, in fact, worse for them in the end than it was in the beginning. And that is exactly what will happen to them. The nation of Israel, in its past in the Old Testament, prior to that, to the captivity, became adulterous. But they were dragged into captivity and suffered even more. And in a sense, you could say the captivity actually cured them of that and brought many of them back to the Lord. But for this generation, history will show that after they turn their back on Jesus, then they will find themselves much worse off than before. Before he came, they lived in, I suppose, a hope, a genuine hope and expectation of his coming. But when he came and they rejected him, they went headlong into a much worse state than they'd ever been before that actually included the destruction and the desecration of the temple by the placing and the worshipping of an idol within the very holy of holies. That would happen within a century of the death of Jesus. So what Jesus is simply saying here is, you folks, you ask for a sign, but the only sign, the final sign that I will give you is my resurrection. But then he also says, in a sense, a prophecy. He says, yeah, I know you're not going to believe it. You're not going to accept what you see and you hear about me. And I'm telling you that because of that, you're going to be judged. And you're going to be judged, as we found out last time, to the point where the men of Nineveh and today, that even the Queen of Sheba will look on you with pity. And these are people who did not have the evidence that you already have. You see, if you do believe in the resurrection, you can be saved. That's the core point and the core truth of the message here and the evidence that Jesus is offering. If you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead and you trust in him and him alone for eternal life, this passage and many others say you will be given the gift of eternal life as a free gift. So that's the positive side of the message. And that's the positive side of even this message, which on the surface can appear maybe quite a negative message. But having said all that, we need, I believe, to make a couple of applications. Number one is, I think, a lesson to be learned here is that those of us who've made a decision to study the Word of God, to trust in the Lord and be disciples of Him, were meant to talk to other people about it. It seems to me that the lesson for all of us, simply our job is to give people the message. That's our job, our commission, if you will. Our mandate is to go and tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, if we do that, at times people are going to ask sincere questions. And of course, those we need to answer as best we can. If anybody does ask, we need to be ready as best we can to be able to give an answer for the hope that is in us and hopefully encourage them with it. 
So that means if people are asking legitimate questions with a sincere heart, we should try our best and give a reasonable answer, as best we can anyway. And even if they ask a tough question that we can't answer, then we should go and try and get the answer and give it to them later. But beyond that, if they're asking for proof, if they're asking for signs, the only sign, the ultimate sign that you need to give them is simply the sign of the resurrection. Here's the thing, folks. I sometimes think that if only we had some clever answer, if only we had some amazing power of persuasion over people, if only we could get people to open their brains and we could pour in what we have that then they would know and understand. But let me tell you, in a sense, we do have such a power. And would you like to know what that power is? Are you ready for this? Here it is. That power is simply the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 said the scripture is more powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So simply give them the good news of what God says. In fact, it tells us, do not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. So give them that. And if you'd like that power, all you have to do is turn to the word of God. To the word of God in general, but to the gospel in particular. Because within the gospel includes the climactic point, the climactic evidence, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the ultimate evidence of the eternal victory over sin. In the knowledge that we now have the promised presence of Holy Spirit, who Jesus tells us will empower us to witness to Jerusalem, Judea and the ends of the world. For it is he that we are told and through him shall receive the power that will enable us to be witnesses to him. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can pour the truth in and allow the Holy Spirit to prompt the people to respond it. But we have no control if their minds are like a, an open sieve or a bucket with a hole in it and they, they just let it flow through and don't follow up on it. So to activate the power of God, it's really simple. Just give people the message and leave the rest to the Holy Spirit because it was with him that the true power of the gospel in its application lies. Our job is simply to give the message. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict and to draw and to enlighten and even to convert, not ours. You see, when you cross that line and believe that it's something that lies within your own power, you're in danger of starting arm twisting. And friends, that's wrong. That's simply wrong. And it's wrong because it never works. In the New Testament, the disciples are told to give the message and to trust the Lord to work it out. I used to try, used to when I talked to people and I felt they didn't get it. I used to, when I was younger, want to twist their arm or try and convince them in one day. But I came upon a passage where Jesus talked to a rich young ruler and the text says that Jesus went away sad for he would not surrender all he had because he, in this case, he had great possessions. And Jesus, you know what? He just let him go. Now, I'm not suggesting that we only witness once to people. I think that we should witness to them regularly. And if we come into contact with them regularly, then we should talk about the Lord regularly when the opportunity arises. But I do think there comes a point when you can give the message to people and then you can say simply, Lord, it's now up to you. And you can, in a sense, back off. You can and still, of course, can pray for them. And you still absolutely should talk to them. But I suppose what I'm trying to say is you just 
have to trust the Lord on these things and the power of the word of God, which is already there in the gospel, and also trust in the spirit of God, who will always do the work of God. Realize that you're not necessarily going to persuade everybody or even anybody with just clever answers. You're never going to convert anyone because you have some sort of amazing power of persuasion. The acceptance of God's message is entirely a work of the Holy Spirit and it is him upon whom we must rely to get it done. Now on the other side of the coin is we have to of course give that message in the first place in order for Holy Spirit to work. If we don't give the message Holy Spirit doesn't even have the chance to work. So by talking to people, we are at least giving the Holy Spirit the chance to work in their lives. So when people ask for proof or ask for evidence, we can say all sorts of things. Of course we can. We can talk about all the stuff about the Old Testament having been written 400 years ago, before the coming of Christ, and how it gives numerous predictions concerning the coming of the Messiah. And I think that's overwhelming proof that Jesus is Messiah. There's nothing like that in any other religious book in this planet, Well, there's nothing like it in the history of mankind. There's nothing like it anywhere in any literature anywhere in the world. The Old Testament told us specifically who the Messiah was 400 years and plus ahead of the time. And that's an amazing thing. But I am have to tell you that the crowning climactic proof of Christianity is the resurrection. And that's the point of the passage and that the decision to accept or reject that will ultimately determine if they will allow God into their lives. So Jesus says to these people who are saying, give us more proof. Okay, I will give you one more sign. I'm going to give you one more chance in a sense. And that is the resurrection. It's coming. And if you believe that, you've got it. And if you don't, well, that's your choice. This is God's message to mankind, contained within the whole Bible. But friends, if you take what Jesus said about the resurrection seriously, I think you will come to see that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the one whom God used and planned all of this for us, for the world, the universe, from the very beginning of all things. Now, on many occasions, highly intelligent well-educated, well-read people, they've rejected Christianity, but also many with that background have decided to try and find it out for themselves, and they've made the decision with an open mind to go and investigate the documents and the information and the scriptural accounts concerning the resurrection, and by doing that, they are after they have independently become Christians. One of the most outstanding examples of this happened in the early part of the 20th century in England, A guy called Frank Morris here was a very well-known atheist writer and investigative journalist and he set out to write a book to prove what he thought that the story of the resurrection was merely a myth. He set out to investigate all the historical documents and look at all the evidence for and against the resurrection and in the process of preparing that foundational attack on the basis of Christianity he actually became convinced that Jesus Christ really did come back from the dead. By applying his his principles, his journalistic principles of trying to get to the truth and gathering evidence and witness evidence, he was converted. And the book he wrote actually became a classic in Christian circles for probably over 50 years. It's actually called Who Moved the Stone? And I think it's still available. But Frank Morrison 
based on just the facts that he researched as a journalist, made the decision and became a Christian. So what I'm telling you is that there is evidence out there. There's good factual evidence and every single person on this planet has access to it if they choose to investigate it. But what I'm telling is you, many people choose never to do that and never to accept it or even think about it. But there's more than just the factual evidence and the accounts and the witness testimonies. There's more than that to consider. There is the actual life, the ministry, the words, the stories and the parables of Jesus. Jesus, in his Gospel of Luke, he tells a story of a rich man and a poor man who both die. And I'd like to conclude today by just reading it to you because I think it illustrates this point and makes this point very well. So this is what it says. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. By the way, purple was the most expensive garment that you could purchase. The creation of a purple dye was hugely expensive that time. Anyway, it continues. At his gate lay a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat whatever fell from the rich man's table. Even, it says, the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man, he also died and was buried, and in Hades he was in torment, and he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side, and he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your life you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in agony there. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm that has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from where you are to us. The rich man then answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not come to this place of torment as I have. And Abraham replied, They have Moses. They have the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead were to go to him, they will repent. He replied to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets... They will not be convinced even if someone is raised from the dead. Friends, what Jesus is saying here in the scriptures is that sometimes even if God were to raise someone from the dead, there are many people who simply won't believe it. And as a matter of fact, we will see that is exactly what Jesus has said here and that is exactly what God will do with Jesus and in fact, in Matthew's account, we've actually seen Jesus do this already when he himself raised a little girl from the dead and they still rejected him. They still didn't get it. So here's the lesson, friends, for all of us. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ and you've heard the message and you give the message to other people, you tell other people that Jesus died for you, Jesus rose from the dead, and if you trust him, God will give you the gift of eternal life. And there is plenty of proof to demonstrate all of those things and the fact that the Holy Spirit is knocking at the door of your heart saying, let me in, let me in. And you know, people don't choose to accept that 
If they don't choose to believe in that, if they don't choose to trust in that, well, in a sense, that's that. We have done our part in it. God has done his part in it. Jesus has done his part in it also. The responsibility to respond is up to them. Okay, that's it for today. I do hope you find that helpful and encouraging. Let me remind you, if you want to receive this podcast every day, just click on the subscribe button to wherever it is you're getting from. And if you'd like access to more free resorts, then I suggest you visit the podcast where it's hosted and you'll find lots of links to places where you can connect to this teaching and more free teaching and Bible training resources that I make available through links that are posted there. So with that all said, thank you friends so much for joining me. It's such a blessing to know that there are so many of us around the world together who have made the decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of our daily lives. And I do hope I'll see you or that you'll hear me because you'll be back again here very soon as we continue together through the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.